Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. 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 I'm down with D&D. Are you ready to get down with some D&D? I know why, and I am joined, as I am always joined, by that majestic, monstrous, modern maverick of mayhem, the Mad Wizard Merwin. What is up, Sean? That's like three or four more M's than I usually get. I, I'm getting a little mystified. <laughs> I mean, just uh, just don't let it go to your uh, monumental head. Yes, my enormous cranium. <laughs> Yeah, very good, very good. So, what are we talking about today? We're talking about monstrous races, but before we do that, we're going to do a few announcements, right? So, what's the first one? So, the first one is that every season, a an intro adventure is released for the new upcoming product, be it an adventure or monster book or what have you. And this time, for Morden Kanan's Tome of Foes, the release is an adventure called Rachma. It is a new book, or sorry, a new adventure that will be released to game stores so they can preview it about a Gith hunting party. So in the lore of Gith Yankee and Gith Zeri, a Ramka, or sorry, a Rachma is a Gith hunting party specially created to hunt mind flayers. So this adventure, which you can play at your game store, will have ninth level pregens. Three Gith Yankee and three Gith Zeri. It was written by Mr. Christopher Lindsay, based on an old third edition adventure that he wrote for convention play. Uh, Chris, of course, works for Wizards of the Coast. His title has changed a bit, but he is essentially in charge of the DMs Guild, in charge of Adventures League, in charge of licensing out uh, certain parts of the game. So he has his finger in a lot of different pies in D&D land. In fact, we are going to be interviewing him for our episode 150 coming up in a couple weeks. So if you play Rachma, you can not bring your Adventures League character because there are pregens, but you can apply rewards gained during play to your Adventures League character. So you still get a little AL jolt from uh, playing it, even though you won't be playing your AL character. And another thing that's been talked about is the new adventure format this, that this adventure uses. People who have received it at their game store and looked it over have talked about how there's no box text. It is a simplified uh, layout. And on many of the encounters, you get tips for the three pillars of play, uh, you know, for your social interaction, your combat, and your exploration. So you can look at that. Look for that at your friendly local gaming store, and hopefully it will be uh, a wider release on the DMs Guild after the new book is out. Sean, I kind of want to get this and um, like get some people together, and we should play it and record it and release it. That would be awesome. Yeah, I think that would be like, a great idea. Like I, I may uh, be able to get a copy, even though I am not a game store. Oh, man, that'd be great, because... The um the Gith Zera and the Gith Yankee and the Mind Flayers and the whole war between them and everything having mm-hmm. to do with the Astral uh, Sea or the Silver Sea or the Astral Plane or whatever you want to call it. It's like my favorite mm-hmm. thing in D&D. I love everything yeah. about this stuff. It's a super deep and rich, um, super deep and, and rich environment in which to play a great deep story. And the adventure itself even talks about um, some more lore about the... You know, the whole background of that war, they call it the endless war between the Gith and the, the Mind Flayers. So mm-hmm. it is definitely steeped in uh, D&D heritage and a great story to build a campaign in. Plus, I really want to look at this new adventure format. It sounds amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. Uh, I don't know if this will be the final format. I don't know if future adventure releases whether you're talking about smaller like Adventures League releases or big hardcover releases, we'll use it. But it is something that has been noted. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. Hey, I heard Satina Phoenix was hired. Yes, she was hired by Wizards as the new community manager. That's kind of um, exciting. 
I haven't seen it officially announced like on the Wizards website, but it was announced on Twitter. Um, if you are not aware, Satine was a guest of our show a while back. She is the co-host of the uh, actual play podcast Maze Arcana with, with Rudy Rutenberg, and she is also um, associated with the Sirens of the Realm podcast. She is a guild adept, and she is a longtime D and D player and a tireless advocate of the game. So, I was not surprised at all to see that she was hired. It, it's a great hire. Um, I can't think of anyone, you know, more engaged with the community than she has been within the last couple of years. She has been at countless conventions. She is always doing, um, you know, online work promoting the game. So it really was a uh, a good hire. I agree. That's a really cool thing to do uh, yeah. for Wizards Lake, and she's excellent. So you know. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Mordenkind's. Uh, Tome of Foes is going to be released on May 18th. Mm-hmm. That's exciting. Yes. Yes. Uh, well, since this podcast airs uh, after that, it's out. It's out in game stores. You can That's... go buy it right now. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Holy Lord. I didn't even think about it. My Lord. <laughs> and uh, and what's what's most interesting is that really this is following a trajectory that we've seen from the, the hardcover releases where it's a book driven more by stories than by rules. And I think that's a great thing for the game. It continues this trend we see of promoting a narrative style of play that cannot not only bring in new players, but it can extend the life of, of an edition without bogging it down in too many rules. So the book contains rules. It contains things that players who are only interested or who are mainly interested in rules will love. But it also plays to that audience um, that's more about the story. So I think that is an awesome uh, idea. The The book is really about major struggles in the world or in the multiverse, if you will. Uh, and one of them we just talked about is the Geth versus the Mind Flayers in the Endless War. It also talks about the blood war between the demons and devils, uh, the Elven Diaspora, the concept of dwarves versus Durgar, the deep dwarves versus uh, the mountain and hill dwarves. Mm. And the last section, which I thought was hilarious, is gnomes and halflings. I, so so here you have, you know, these demons versus devils, the gith versus uh, all this deep, heavy stuff. And then the last thing is halflings and gnomes. What's the deal? And, and people who are in my tribe, that's the one they, they want to focus on because I just want to make some evil halflings and gnomes. Is really what I want to do. Well, I, that's actually redundant. Evil halflings and gnomes, but well, yeah, that's where that's where I want to focus. Let's be fair, Sean. The gaming group that you actually play with—they played a bunch of half-orc barbarian brothers, and the way that they dealt with traps was like you know rock paper scissors for it, and then whoever whoever loses, they just you know go in there first. Yeah, oh yeah, they throw them down the stairs. That that was their favorite game growing up. Throw them down the stairs. Throw them down uh, the stairs. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So yes. I mean, brother Ram. Like I mean, that's the, yep. I mean. So I, I, I'm not I, I'm not really surprised by this. That's all I'm yeah. saying. Yep, the brothering ram is the most effective way to get through doors. Yeah, there's zero yep. surprise here. I'm still working on a way to get those guys together so we can do a you know do a podcast or a stream of them playing the horde because it is it is a sight to behold as as people who have played with them at, at conventions can tell you. A brothering ram, an adventure by Sean Merwin. Mm-hmm. You know it. Yeah, sounds like good stuff. I really hope yep. we see that someday. So the last thing we wanted to talk about before we get into Monstrous Races is the Mastering Dungeons blog has been restarted. Sean, you've been blogging pretty consistently um, for about yeah, I, a month now. Yep, I've been trying to, to keep it regular. Uh, I go in streaks where I really need to think about something, so I will start making notes and it turns into a blog. And so I'm, I'm in the groove right now, and so... As we've mentioned before, I have taken over the writing of the Dragon Plus column. Uh, the what's it called? The best of the the uh, best of the DMs Guild. Yep. And and you know in that I'm looking at some really good stuff and talking about you know its design and why it works. But I can't really talk about my own stuff. That would be probably not kosher to talk about my own stuff on on the Dragon Plus column. So I'm going to use the blog to look at my own stuff and. Think about what I've learned over these last, I don't know, six, five, four, five, six years of 
making uh, adventures and, and content for 5th edition. And so I started, I restarted by looking at the, the, the adventure Defiance in Flan. And the first blog was looking at it as a whole because it's made of five mini missions. So looking at the concept of how it was designed and what it needed to do as a whole. And now I'm delving down into each mini adventure and talking about, you know, why it was designed the way it was, what I think went right, what I think went wrong. Um, and, you know, the last one I did was about the second mission, which is, I think, the worst of the five, you know, just in terms of what I was trying to do and how I actually achieved it or failed to achieve it. So, mm-hmm. you know, I pretty well brutalized myself in, in the last blog. So if you enjoy, you know, seeing that self-flagellation, you should run right over there. It's on the Encoded Designs website, and you can just go to EncodedDesigns.com, look for the drop down where it talks about the columns and and you can find mastering dungeons there yeah, people you really people are saying to yourself by the way on yeah that one. i did and and you know i think it's all honest and and fair so you know it's not a big deal but people are saying that they're getting a lot out of it and they're thanking me for doing it so if you you know enjoy articles looking at the design of something and why it works or why it doesn't work especially in terms of the indie adventures hop on over there and let me know what you think or, or you know think if i'm if I'm on the straight and narrow and, and seeing things correctly, or if I'm looking at it through some sort of distorted prism. Yes, absolutely. I think everyone should go read it. Like Sean has been doing this for a very long time, so he has a lot of good things to say, and he is not above critiquing himself quite harshly. And that's good to know, Like especially when somebody's being that honest with themselves. You can learn a lot from that kind of stuff. I hope. Okay, let's talk about Monsters Races. It's that time. It's that it time. Is, it is that time. So yesterday, WotC released its latest Unearthed Arcana article. It covered centaurs and minotaurs as playable races. Sort of, kind of. Yeah, yeah. So the reaction on the Internet in the D&D spaces is exactly what's wonderful and terrifying about the Internet. You know, people were yelling and some people loved it, some people hated it. And you got a lot of, you know, really good points and you got a lot of really strange points. And, like, seeing an argument that culminates in the phrase... A horse is a horse, said unironically, is really one of the only things that keeps me getting out of bed each day, <laughs> seeing stuff like that. It's ridiculous. It's because, funny. you know, anyone over the age of 40 is going, a horse is a horse, of course, of course, uh, from Who's a horse? Mr. Carson, famous Mr. Ed. Yeah, I'll sing it. Yep. So, you know, so I'm sitting there. That's going through my head. I'm seeing a Wilbur. But, you know, but this person is just so angry or upset and they're screaming a horse is a horse uh so it's like i said it's pretty much why i live man so is it sad that that's one of the better sitcoms from that era of time exactly that that pretty much sums sums a lot up (laughs) so i i think we've talked about monstrous races in the past maybe tangentially maybe not as a full-on podcast um so what i would love to do chris is look at the rules that they gave us in this Unearthed Arcana article, while at the same time talking more generally about the joys and the problems of monstrous uh, you know, races as player races. Yeah, I mean, if you want to talk about them as sort of a mix bouncing back and forth, I'm all about it. Like, we could totally cool. do that. Yep. So I'm going to give a spiel that if you've heard this podcast or heard me talk at conventions before, you've heard me say probably more than once. When I look at any new rules, it doesn't matter if they're races, classes, feats, backgrounds, what, what have you, there are three things that I really, really look at when I look at those rules. The first is, is it thematically and narratively strong? Does the flavor make it an intriguing part of the story that you're telling? Two, is it fun to play long term? Now, obviously, fun is a subjective thing. Some people have fun doing one thing. Some people have fun doing the opposite, and never the twain shall meet. So we can analyze you know, what is fun for certain people and see if that fits the fun theme. And finally, uh, are the rules reasonably balanced? Um, not too weak, not too strong, uh, yeah, but somewhere in the mix of all the other rules that have been released for the edition so far. Sound good? Can- can I add a, a couple of things to this? Sure. So, um, one, I, I love when we do this stuff, and I love that you like bring up these questions all the time because this is very much plays to our um, 
our sort of an- an- analytical backgrounds that we have because mm-hmm. we do a lot of that critical analysis type stuff, especially of like story and whatnot. So mm-hmm. I-, I love everything that we're saying here. I always think about races, especially these days, um, especially any kind of character option is like, what are the mechanics trying to do and how do they promote the whole theme and narrative of what's going on? Like, sure. That is, how does that make the flavor come out? Right. Mm-hmm. That's, that's where I'm looking at. And yeah. when you say, is it fun to play long term? I'm like, uh, do the, do, do the mechanical aspects and the narrative, narrative hooks that are possible in the future for these, these races allow mm-hmm. for, um, them to matter beyond just the mechanical bonuses they give you at the beginning of play, like sure. way later in, in, in levels. So like for D and D do the mechanical and narrative mechanical bonuses and, and pieces, um, play into the theme over the course of 20 levels and four tiers right. of play. And do they, um, provide hooks that will allow for these things to pop up or their background story type things to pop up in all tiers of play. Yep. That is an absolutely great point. Um, and one of the reasons I put is it fun to play long term kind of kind of hits what you just said in the sense that you can sit down with with a pre-gen, play something, have a lot of fun with it, but you kind of play it out. You, mm-hmm. you get through everything that you want to get through in that four or five, six, whatever hour slot. And then you're like, OK, that was fun. I don't want to ever do that again or not for a long time. Whereas playing in a campaign, you have to be able to come back to that character again and again and again and get the same joy out of it that you did the first time you sat down. Yeah, I just you said, uh, is it fun to play long term? And I wanted to see if we could maybe find a way to talk about that being a little less objective, right? Like cause yep, fun is absolutely. subjective. But what I, I threw out there, I think, makes it a little more objective. Yeah, oh, a- absolutely. You're absolutely correct. Cool. So, uh, what's the? We're gonna talk about the centaur first. Let's do that. So, um, flavor. There's not a whole lot there, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, as as I was reading the the little text before they got to the mechanical bits, I was like, okay, cool. Tell me about the centaur. Why is the centaur something interesting to play? And and the the first thing they talked about was centaurs love to run. And I'm thinking, okay. Well, here we go. This is some deep stuff. Um, then, you know, Bruce uh, Springsteen started going through my head. Born to run. Wow, you're you giving me all it. sorts of straight lines for singing in this episode. Holy I, Lord. I tell you, it's really, this is all about Chris singing this episode. Um, <laughs> so so I was like, okay, that's that's a thing. Horses like to run. Centaurs like to run, too. Great. And then, so, okay, what's next? What's next? What's cool about them? Well, they like nature. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Elves, gnomes, forest gnomes. Yeah. Lots of wild and everyone likes nature, kind of. Uh, what else you got? And then there was a part about they celebrate the birth of a foal, you know, quite festively. Okay. Most cultures I know celebrate births quite festively you know it's, yeah. it's a cool thing yeah and then it's like and like but they're really connected to their past okay they celebrate they births and they're connected to their past and and so it there was just all this vague stuff and i understand that this is just an unearthed arcana article but so far i have seen no thought given to their place within a larger tapestry of a world yes not only that um this is so generic mm-hmm. and vanilla that there's nothing there to hook on to. No. I mean, the family thing is one thing. Like, if they're fiercely tribal, then that means something. But they don't say that, right? Exactly. If if they're connected to their past, like, what's their past at all? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, where's the where's the conflict that goes along with that? Yep. And and so we saying all of this. We have to recognize that this is a playtest article where they probably wrote the rules first and then said, well, we need to get these rules out. Let's just put up some some things and, and go with it. Makes makes complete and total sense. I, you, I understand that maybe there's going to be more behind it, uh, but until there's more behind it, I can't say that there's a lot of flavor, um, not only in what we read, but in terms of the history of D&D. 
it's not like centaurs held a central um, central role in any large plot or any large story that that stays with you. You know, the blood war stays with you. The endless war between the, the Gith and the Illithids stay with you. Um, there's no centaur war that that you know survived from edition to edition. So not only is there nothing on the page, there's nothing in the background uh, of of the uh, of the D and D zeitgeist that talks to me about centaurs. Yeah, even when we talk about minotaurs, which we will in a second, they have a whole lot of history to them um, from Kryn. True, right? sailors and sort of a, a tactical warlike race, like. Right. I mean, that's not in this article because the Minotaurs is just an update from a previous Unearth article, Unearth Arcana article. But yeah. yeah, there's there's like nothing here for the Centaur, man. It's very disappointing in a lot of ways because it's like, where's anything? Like, there's nothing to it. It's it's they're mm-hmm. like a blank slate still. Or Tabula Rasa right up in here. Right, and and as we'll probably say a couple times in this uh, episode, as the DM or as the player, you can create your own. And that's great if you can do that, and maybe they fit into your campaign perfectly for whatever reason that you give to have them have this great story, uh, but it's it's not here yet. Yes, correct. Now, and to that point, Sean, like anybody who thinks like, oh, look, they have this background for these, these races, like, and we should be um, beholden to that for our games, like, no, you don't. I mean, that's the cool thing about having this stuff is that it gives you some ideas for how to use them, right? Mm-hmm, and there's right. nothing here. <laughs> yep. Yep. Um yep. you want to talk about fun then? Yeah, so I need to preface this by again saying fun is a subjective term um and people have different fun different ways. But let me tell you as a DM who has gone to a convention like Origins or Gen Con and sat down and run seven tables when strange races have been just made legal for um like Adventures League play. So everyone is piling in and and uh, playing these races and you sit at seven tables in a row and hear the same jokes over and over again, this kind of low hanging fruit of, Hey, I can poop while I'm walking cause I'm a centaur and Oh, I'm going to mount this other PC. Ha ha ha. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's, it's funny the first six times, but the seventh time it, it, it's fun for that brief injection of humor, which is a, fine way to play if it's you and your group of friends all laughing about it but you know when the dm has to deal with the same joke over and over and over and over again um so i it it, it gets old so i understand that you can have fun with this in sort of this silly low-hanging fruit sort of joke way uh, in the short term but in the long term it might get old after a while so now we're searching for what's the fun in the centaur character over the long term. And that's a question that I really don't have an answer for um, because between the mechanics, which we will talk about shortly and the lack of flavor, which we just talked about, there's not a lot of resonance to have fun in for me. Yeah, there's yes. I'll just say yes for now. Yeah. And and you know, you know, when we talk about Minotaur, let's switch it around. Let's talk about the game mechanics and balance first, then talk about the fun. I think that'll be a little easier. Yes, let's do that. Okay. So let's talk about balance. Sure. Chris, do you want to go through yeah, real quick and talk about the rules for the uh, the Centaur? Absolutely. So they're medium creatures, sort of. That means that... Um, so they're, they're considered medium creatures, but... When they're carrying things for the purpose of carrying things and endure, uh, uh, and like dragging and pushing and pulling things, they're considered large. So that's interesting in a strange way. I mean, I don't know how that works, but I mean, it, sure. But I mean, mechanically, it's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, they can move at forty. Uh, that's pretty pretty decent, and ga- especially in games that that focus on tactics, they have an attack. Uh, they can do um, as an action. They can use their hooves to like kick things for a d6 plus strength bludgeoning. They also get plus two to their strength. I don't know mm-hmm. of any other. Do dragonborns get plus two to their strength? I don't know. Yeah, you know, I was starting to look that up. I think half orcs do. Yeah, they're the only other race that gets it. I, I mean, don't min- think no, dragonborns do. Um, yeah. So that's that's interesting and 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 
I don't. I think it's fine. Um, they have a hard time climbing stuff, which I think is uh, appropriate. So that means they can yep. still climb. It's just harder. That's good in a lot of ways. Although imagining like um, a centaur, you know, climbing up a rope is kind of in- or climbing up like a rope ladder is kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're trained in survival because of that whole nature thing. And they're considered a humanoid and a monstrosity, so they can be affected by a variety of different spells and effects. Mm-hmm. Yep. I just wanted to cover a couple of things there. Um, you know, in terms of game balance, speed is always interesting to me. Um, you know, to have certain creatures that can only move 25, uh, what elves can move 35. Now we have a, a race that can move 40, which is an advantage that is written into the rules. So that has to be taken into account as part of the balance. However, in games that are heavily narratively driven, speeds usually don't come into play. You usually don't say, well, you know, if you're just telling the story, speed is rarely um, taken into account. You don't say to the dwarf, well, you know, you can't get there, but your buddy can. You don't see that a lot. So, you know, if it's considered a balancing mechanism in the design of the game, but it's not ever used, it kind of loses its potency. It does. I've actually had to, like, come up with some hacks to uh, to yep. account for speed in theater of the mind. Like, yep. I use tags, basically, like, you're fast or you're slow. And mm-hmm. if I decide to use your slow tag against you, then I'll probably give you inspiration. Because I'm like, well, you can't quite get there because you're slow, but here's some inspiration because you're slow. And then mm-hmm. if, if you're fast, you're just like, well, you're faster than everybody else. So you get there before everybody else. What do you do first? Like, it's a way yep. to kind of mess with initiative and whatnot. But those are complete and total hacks to the game, right? Like, sure. Those aren't the actual and, and rules. Yeah, and they're good hacks to to give that bonus to the character that you know took that race and should get the benefit of having a faster speed, for sure. Uh, I wanted to mention the Equine build, which is the one that lets you carry more things. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also gives specific rules for climbing, because in previous editions, that was a huge sticking point in games that I saw with Minotaur characters, or I'm sorry, with Centaur characters. It's, well, you know, um, you're going through the dungeon, everything's all well and good, here's a ladder. Uh, unless you're you know, high level and can levitate or have spells that let you carry someone or teleport someone, you're kind of stuck at the bottom of the ladder there, uh, you know, Skippy. Mm-hmm. So, uh, at, so they specifically put into the rules... You can climb ropes and you can climb ladders, but it's basically, I think, quarter speed. It is. So, so again, unless it is an encounter in which your climbing speed is super important, this is something that can just be simply ignored, um, which I guess is good for some games and not so good for others. It's also another thing, like the Game Master, the Dungeon Master, Game Master, whichever term you want to use, um, He's allowed to make calls, right? So, like, if Mm -hmm. you're positioning on the side of a thing that you're climbing comes into play, like, Game Master can be like, Hey, Centaur, you have disadvantage on stuff because you're a frickin' horse. Mm -hmm. I mean, that still exists in the game. Like, like, it's a nice thing about D&D, right? We just make calls. Yep, And, and that's super cool until the DM's call and the player's thought... Don't agree. Good thing that the game master, dungeon master, is always in charge for the most part when it comes to that kind of stuff. Yes. It's just that sometimes the DM oversteps that. That's true. And and sometimes the players don't appreciate that. Yeah, it's it's a a balancing act, right? Like any of that kind of stuff. And the only reason I'm, I'm mentioning it now is because sometimes characters that are these different sorts of races uh, cause that friction. Everything else is pretty well understood. And then when you throw something as strange as a centaur in, that understanding becomes fuzzy. And that's where you can get a lot of friction. Mm -hmm. Um, And it can be easily worked out by tables that communicate well and everyone's affable. Um, But as soon as you get someone with a, you know, 
an argumentative personality or someone who tries to push it a little too far or a DM who doesn't like it so gets a bit savage about it, um, then you start getting that friction. And Yeah, I'm, I'm always approaching this from the point of view that people are going to do what's in the best interest of the game. And I probably shouldn't do that. Oh, aren't you cute, Chris? I know, right? <laughs> like, here's here's the reality of the situation. The ne- like when when it comes to to situations like this where you're like, well, we don't really have rules for it. I'm never like. So I said the game master's in charge, right? Like, really, this the 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 fictional position of the situation is in charge. That is that is usually what I rely on. Like, okay, why don't you have? disadvantage like what makes you sturdy here i mean you're on the side of a mountain trying to fight things that are flying at you gargoyles and you're a you're a centaur like how are you able to fight and hold on effectively so that i don't give you disadvantage explain Mm -hmm. it to me and then there we are like there's the fiction if you can really tell me how you can do that maybe i'll even be impressed and not give you disadvantage and maybe i'll even give you inspiration right and and that's and that's a fine way to handle it. And if only all DMs were as understanding and as you know focused on the overall picture as you, life would be good. Hey, anybody who's listening to this show, after hearing that, you probably should be. Mm-hmm. There you go. So, you know, in terms of rules and game balance, there's not a lot that stands out as way overpowered or way underpowered. Um, with the understanding that a lot of things get overlooked, like I said, the speed, um, the climbing. One thing that always sets off a warning in my head is the mount um, aspect of it. Mounted combat is, over the different editions, has, has always been problematic in certain arenas. Let's put it that way. And, you know, with with 5th edition, it's... Not like every DM, even if you're a very experienced DM, it's not like if I said, okay, tell me about the rules for mounted combat. I can't. I can't tell you what you, they are. You could just reel it off the top of your head. I, I don't so, think I can. And, and it's, it, that's okay because it's not hard to look up. But when you start, you know, the, the balance of the mount is you get some extra speed usually. But it's not like the mount can break a game by being way overpowered. Uh, but when you start getting mounts that can do their own thing and you start combining, you know, different feats with different spells with this, with that, uh, it's an area that you need to watch out for. I won't say it's broken. I won't say that it's going to ruin a game for anyone, but you get some clever players pushing rules in a certain direction. Uh, it's that's one of the areas to watch out for. And this has that problem, by the way. Yep. Because you can be on a mount, you can be on somebody as a mount, but it doesn't take your actions at all. So mm-hmm. you're not using your move action, right? By moving around on top of this. So that's a that's a, actually a miss, um, a miss on the rules right there. Like it should be, there should be something that states in there. If you move, um, in a round, uh, I mean, this is going to sound clunky because I don't have a good way to write it right now. But if you move in some way on top of um, on top of a centaur, then you lose your move action. Right. Like, and, and it's also you are moving when it's not your turn. Yes. There's that. So too. that, you know, so that's a little bit of a place where the rules aren't, you know, because force movement's one thing. This is force movement, but it's also wanted movement. So, yeah. you know, so now we have to figure out how to deal with the idea of force movement because it technically is force movement. Mm-hmm. You are moving not of your own power. Right. Um, you are choosing to be moved. So that's like you said, that's a thing. Um, you're moving not on your turn. You're according to the rules. Like after you move on top of this creature, you still have your full complement of actions. Like that's actually mm-hmm. a problem. Yeah, it that's what I'm saying. It, you know, it's it doesn't necessarily have to be game breaking. But it brings up a lot of questions that the people who like to follow the rules and are in a campaign where the rules are, you know, the rules are things that are there for a reason and should not just be broken for game or for story purposes. It, again, is a frictional point within the game. Yeah. 
And um, the reason I I would actually come right out and say that these are um, broken is because they defy the um, they defy what actually would be going on in the universe, like mm -hmm. of play, like the reality of like it breaks the picture in my mind. Right. Like mm -hmm. that's what it does. Like there is a certain picture in my mind that is set up by by this game rules. These this rule set. It's it's really how, how my um, I always talk about how rules should inform play should inform rules mm -hmm. like the the narrative should be informed by the rules which should inform the narrative. Like mm -hmm. this completely defies all that stuff, because as right. soon as you put a monk on top of a centaur. And the and then the the centaur and the monk, the centaur plus the monk can move like 500 feet around like we have a problem. Like, I'm right. like, what just happened? Like, why does the game not work the way I'm thinking it should work to, to provide the, the picture in my head that I'm seeing? Mm -hmm. Especially considering the fact that it works outside of everything else that's been previously set up. Right. So, there you go. That's that's a problem, like, with, mm -hmm. with these rules. Okay, that's yeah. all. That's all I'm saying. No, no, I, I'm nodding vigorously in agreement. Uh, you want to talk about the Minotaur now? Uh, yeah, why don't we? So, let's start so, with the flavor. So the, there isn't flavor because this is a re a re up from the last one, right? Yep. So like they're just going off of what they did before, right? And I didn't go back to look at the previous one. So this the article itself pretty much has no flavor. Mm -hmm. uh, the but we do have at least a connection um, to different elements of D and D that have carried across uh, across the editions in in the form of lore. And setting, so we talked about the Dragonlance setting in mm -hmm. Kryn, where the Minotaurs weren't just these feral beasts, but they were actually a brilliant uh, strategic tacticians of war with a complex relationship to their deities. So, uh, in terms of flavor, in terms of story, Minotaurs do fit if you're playing in Kryn, and there's also a connection um, in the. D&D multiverse between the demon lord Baphomet and Minotaurs. Mm -hmm. So they, you know, they do have a place in the setting through which you can create a character that can be can have interesting elements where is, you know, you could be a worshipper of Baphomet and so, you know, feral and and slaughtery. That's not a word but it is now. It uh, is now. Or you can play against the type and be someone who rejected that. So, you know, you've always got this this thing inside you that you're fighting against, this rage, this, you know, this want of slaughter. Which is cool. There's some stuff mm -hmm. there. There's there's conflict. There's hooks. Yep. So at least somewhere in the background it's there. Now let's flip and talk about game balance. Yeah, I mean, I'll run through these mechanics, real, the, the mechanisms that you get for being a Minotaur real quick again. Um, so you get a plus two to your strength, you get a plus one to your con. Um, they're medium creatures, kind of, once again. Um, you have horns, so you have an, as an action, you can you know use your horns to do 1d6 plus strength bludgeoning damage. You have this goring rush, which is if you use your dash action and you move at least your speed, you can then use a bonus action to make a horns attack, which I think that's pretty neat. Um, for a minotaur, very very themey. Um, ham hammering horns. Um, immediately after you hit with a melee attack, you can use your reaction um, to make a, and the target must make a strength saver gets pushed five feet. Um, and they're trained in intimidation, which is menacing. And they are also a humanoid and a monstrosity. So, what do you think? Uh, I think pretty much you're talking about a half orc with horns. Yes, <laughs> it is is where I see this. Um, you know, just in terms of balance, I don't think it's it's overly uh, powerful, nor is it too weak. It it seems to be exactly what you would look for in a Minotaur character. Now, I really like um, the Goring Rush and the Hammering Horns. I think they're mm -hmm. very themey to a Minotaur, so I like that a lot. Like they they uh, one the names are good, I think, mm -hmm. yeah. and the uh, what you do with them. Uh, invokes a certain kind of play style. Like, mm -hmm. if you want to use your Goring Rush, you have to use your dash action, which means, one, one it takes away your attack action, which is cool, I think, because you're still going to get an attack at the back end of it by using your bonus action. Yep. Um, and it's kind of neat, too, if you think about it, if uh, if you were a Minotaur. I wonder if... um, I feel like you can probably use... If you're a Minotaur Rogue, 
You can use it as your sneak attack. <laughs> that is a good question. That's another one of those. Technically, no, uh, since it's a strength attack. Um, and I believe your rogue sneak attack needs to be a light weapon. Oh, does it? That makes or, me sad. Or a uh, finesse weapon. So that that makes me really sad because it would be kind of neat yeah. if you could sneak attack well, with, a, I mean, with your with a dash. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, as as a DM, of course, you can always say, "Sure, go ahead." Uh, but you know, in terms technically by by rules, no. And you know, other than that, my my first thought when I re- read all this through was, you know, half work with horns, and I I'm going to stick by that. So in, in terms of in terms of the fun, now we've we talked about the flavor, it's there but it's not specified in this article. Balance, it's it's pretty much on par um, with with other kind of big, strong, dumb races. Uh, in terms of fun, I, I'm kind of in the same boat as I was with the with the uh, with the centaur. I've run lots of games for Minotaur PCs and it's kind of the same deal with the, you know, you make the joke about the character being horny and, and you hear that seven times um, over seven different games. And then there's not much left to do after that other than, you know, try to find the dramatic stuff. And that needs to be meshed with the flavor to make it, um, Fun for everyone in the long run. I'm so sad that that needs a needs a finesse or a range weapon for that core <laughs> attack. I, I mean, because I mean, how many TV shows have you watched, right? Where like somebody's fighting somebody, and then all of a sudden the big brute comes in and and just right. like bulls them over from out of nowhere, and it looks like a sneak right. attack. I'm like, come oh, on, it's absolutely. perfect. I mean, I wish the horns were were a finesse weapon. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I like I said, you know, if you're the DM and you feel like doing that, it's probably a little unbalancing, but go for it. Uh, the one thing I did want to mention is the the I'm I am of two minds about these natural weapons for both uh, the hooves and the horns, mm-hmm. in the sense that they don't scale up with level, and part of me wants them to at least a little bit, uh, because if you look at say a dragonborn, you know they have their breath weapon, it goes up by level. From you know, by the time you get to sixteenth level, it's five d six for everyone in the area of your breath weapon. Now, sure, you can only do that you know once per short rest, whereas these you could do every time. So you don't want to make them too powerful, but making them just a little more powerful to give them a little more oomph, so they might be used at at higher levels. Does that make sense? It does. I'm just trying to think of how you would do it. I, yeah, I don't. I, mean, I don't disagree with you at all. I'm just now. I'm thinking about the design of it all. Like, how would you? How would you actually yeah. enact that? Yeah. And granted, your strength is going to go up, but that's only going to be you know at the most three or four points from first level to sixteenth um, higher. So you know, make it two d six. Make it. Make it. I don't know. Make it something um, that gives you an increase in power to at least make it an option at higher levels. So here, let me ask you a question. Mm-hmm. So um, I think that the problem with like the horns and the hooves um, scaling is in reality, all they are are basically short swords mm-hmm. mechanically, right? Right. So people who fight with weapons when they get better over time their weapons only get better over time because they're getting magic versions of them, right? Yes. And they although can... you get you get more attacks. Yeah, but they can still use these as part of their more attacks because this is their they can use these as part of their attack action, can't they? It is the full action. Oh man, there should be a thing where this is those things shouldn't be your full action to use these, these should be part of your attack. Like when you make, when you take the attack action, this can be one of your attacks or all of your attacks. Like you can just like use it as all of your attacks. Like okay. that would be cool. Cause then, then you can like have a centaur that has enchanted hooves, right? 
mm-hmm. or a minotaur with enchanted horns. I feel like sure. that would kind of solve the problem that you're that you're that you're positing right now, right? It's yeah. It it is. It definitely mitigates it and possibly answers it completely. Yeah, and, that's where I'm one, at with it. And one of the other things that probably would better go when we wrap things up, and I'm going to mention it now anyway, uh, is the monster version of these creatures do more damage than the player version. So, you know, minotaurs with their horns, according to um, the player's hand, or the monster manual, I think do 2d6 plus strength, whereas this version just does 1d6. And that's that's a, a thing that I've always had problems with in in any edition. That's interesting. Is you you're making you you have this established thing that the players fight against. Then you make it a PC version and it's weaker. And it's weaker because it has to be weaker. Um if you don't make it weaker, then you have to deal with like third edition dealt with the the ECLs, right? Where where you're actually, you know, you're a first level barbarian uh, minotaur, but in terms of play, you're actually fourth level, or, or you know, because it's an ECL plus three, uh, and that's just horrible. I I, I hate that. The too much math and too much tinkering, um, but this also just doesn't. It doesn't feel quite right when. You know, so you're the Minotaur PC, and you go into the maze with your party to fight the Minotaur, who's large and doing a lot more damage than you. And just in terms of story, why? You know, are you a different type of Minotaur? Maybe, and if that's the case, then that needs to be addressed, you know, as part of the story. But I don't know. It just, I I can understand why it needs to be done, and. Part of me can ignore it and say, fine, we're just going to go with it. Uh, but you know, the storyteller in me wants there to be a reason. I think that's fascinating that you think that. I really do. Like, mm-hmm. um, from a, I, I see, I completely see your point. I get what you're saying. I just, I am, as we know, we've, we've, we've designed and messed around with this game for a bunch of years now. Um, the monster, the, the, the adversaries that player characters fight are all built in a very different way than the player characters, right? And they and so I, I think they should be. I I, I, I agree, I agree too. Be. So right. there, that, when that happens, like I don't, I, I think it's interesting that you have that disconnect for something like a minotaur as a monster, um, because I don't have that disconnect for when um, a bunch of humans are fighting a bunch of humans. Even though those the humans that they're fighting against all have a bunch of different names and aren't built the same way and have a bu- bunch of different ways to fight. There's, but there's build, and then there's there's the lore, the, and I think that's two different things. That's true. Uh, I right? mean, the minotaur. Just in terms of size, just in terms of size, you know. Now that's, why are you? That's why are you a me. runt? Why are you so big? That that one, I'll, that, that I'm with you on that one. Like I don't right. understand why the minotaur as a monster is large, and the minotaur as a player character is medium. That oh right. That doesn't make any sense to me. Right. And that's really what I'm talking about. I'm not really talking about, you know, one gores for more points than the other. Yeah. Um, you know, I that I completely understand, and, and it has to be different. No, I'm talking about the very basic essence of the creature, like the size. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something that just... And again, I can, I can work around it in a game, no problem. And, you know, as long as I'm not in super analysis mode then i'm fine but when you just think about it at that level where you want the story to make sense you know you want these things to make sense give me a reason why pc minotaurs are medium and the monsters they fight are are, are large that's all i agree that i'm with you 100 percent on that one that one never never made sense to me like if you're gonna have this race in the game then they're a race in the game i, I feel like if um if you're playing with a bunch of minotaurs and you're going to use minotaurs as adversaries, like they should, you should probably just make them all the same size and by all the same size, make the other minotaurs medium. Then at that point, like, right. like just, it's not a huge change. It's, right. it's easy enough to do, but it's definitely not that written that way in the book. Right. For sure. Yeah. But I'm, I'm with you a hundred percent, but the, the mechanical parts of it, I don't really like yeah. every, uh, the, the player character adversary thing is just a, I don't really, it, it never really bothered me that this schism, but yeah, the essence part does bother mm-hmm. me. Absolutely. Yep, yep. 
Um, I would say we should talk a little bit about a few other things, but we're like running long on time. We've been doing this for okay. 50 minutes. Wow. Look at us go. Maybe we can talk next week, at least for a little while, about um, some of our overall thoughts on monstrous PCs. Like, And here, I'll preface this for everybody for next time. Like, Why would we want them? What purpose do they serve? What kind of different games and stories can we play with them? What would make them neat in mine and Sean's eyes? And are they a good fit for organized play? So there's your preview for next week's episode. There you go. This this is such a big topic that it, it, covered, uh, it covered two weeks. We do go on. We do go on. All right. Well, with that, um, if you don't mind, I'm going to do a few Patreon shout-outs. Go for it. Uh, Eric Meng, uh, Xavier Devengos. I think I said that right. I probably said it wrong, Xavier. I, I do it every time. I had your name phonetically correct because you sent it to me, but I'm, I'm getting closer. Sorry. Uh, Eric Simon, Victor Wyatt, Garrett Cologne, who's in the Slack room a lot. I, like, I love talking to Garrett. Uh, John Carney, Brett Just Brett, Sean Kelly, The Rainmaker, and Chris Steele. Mm. And speaking of patrons, if you'd like to be a patron of Down with D&D, you can click on the link to our Patreon page on the website, and for a paltry $2 a month, you can get yourself a shout-out. Or for $4 a month, you not only get a shout-out, but you also get to see our pre-production show notes. Mm. If you can't help us monetarily, but you want to give us a boost, you can do so with an Apple Podcast review. We do so love our Apple Podcast reviews. We do, and those help even if you're not listening via Apple Podcasts, because other podcatchers often use Apple Podcasts to rate and rank the shows that make us more visible. Mm-hmm. So, Sean, where can we find you on the Internet? Uh, you can find me on Twitter, at Sean Merwin, or on the Down With D&D G Plus community. You can hit me up at Misdirected Mark on Twitter or on the website where you can catch other great shows such as this one. Pandas Talking Games. Phil and Senda answer your questions about role-playing games from the perspective of one-shots and campaigns with some panda silliness. And uh, this past week they got a question about the Ditch Lilies. And if you don't know what that is, you should just go listen to that most recent episode. It was a grab bag episode. It was hilarious. And I kind of want to <laughs> make a Ditch Lilies game now. Down with D&D is a Misdirected Mark production. The media arm of Encoded Designs. So what are we going to do now, Sean? We're going to go kill some very large minotaurs. You down with D&D? Yeah, you know me. You down with D&D? Yeah, you know me. You down with D&D? Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? This whole party. You down with D&D? Yeah, you know me. You down with D&D? Yeah, you know me. I'm down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? Yeah, you know me.